This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. In 1969, the Canadian Football League decided to hold its annual Grey Cup in Montreal. The 1960s was an exciting time in Quebec with massive social and political change. But Montreal was a troubled city, frightened by an underground terrorist group called the FLQ. They had planted bombs in the city since 1963. In the months and weeks before the Grey Cup, they were in the midst of their most intense bombing campaign. Why bring the game into this chaos, risking the lives of the players and possibly the Prime Minister of Canada, who was invited to kick off the day, is a story that has never been told. Montreal's Molson Stadium. It has sat on the slope of Mount Royal since 1919, when it opened on the campus of McGill University, the birthplace of Canadian football. The game has a long history in Montreal, dating back to the 1850s, when McGill modified the rules of rugby that would lead to the birth of Canadian football. Today, Montreal Alouettes are one of the most successful teams in the league. But in the 1960s, football in Montreal was a dying enterprise. The trouble began in 1960, when the owner of the Alouettes, Ted Workman, traded their two superstars, quarterback Sam Echeverry, known as the Rifle, and the Prince, Hal Patterson. Without consulting the general manager, they were hastily traded to the Hamilton Ticats. The fans were outraged. Turns out, Workman's wife had revealed publicly she was having affairs with both the rifle and the prince. The players were not the only ones Workman traded that year. That pretty much almost destroyed uh, football in Montreal, and attendance in, in, throughout the 60s was terrible, and so were the teams. In 1968, when a newly appointed CFL commissioner, Jake Goddard, came on the scene, football in Montreal was in serious trouble. Goddard, an athlete and former player with the Alouettes, was determined to do something about it. Having recently discovered his family's French-Canadian roots, this Ontario-born Goddard realized he had to attract a Francophone audience if football was to survive in Quebec. 
Football was not terribly popular in French-speaking Canada before the mid to late 1990s. So in the 1960s, football was widely viewed as a sport of les Anglais, of the English, if you will. It uh, was not played to a great extent in French-speaking Canada and was viewed to a certain extent as a foreign sport. Godard decided the only way to turn this around was to bring a major event to Montreal, the Grey Cup. It hadn't been played here in almost 40 years. This would be his chalice to show the city what Canadian football was all about. It was a fun national party. That's what the Grey Cup really was. And, and I believe back when we played, it was that way. And I still believe it is the, the one sport that we have in Canada that, that unites the whole country. Godard knew the 69 Grey Cup was going to be a winner. Two of the best teams in the league were in competition, and one of the teams had the greatest Canadian player of all time, quarterback Russ Jackson. Russ Jackson was a unique person. I mean, you know, there haven't been too many Canadians who have played quarterback in the CFL, and nobody has played at the level he has. He was a superstar in a position that was normally reserved for an American. What Godard may not have realized from his comfortable office in Toronto was how drastically things were changing in Quebec since he played there in 1947. Quebec was in the midst of radical social and political change. What had been dubbed the Quiet Revolution in the early 60s was now in the throes of terrorist campaigns led by the Front de Libération de Quebec, the FLQ, determined to see the emergence of an independent Quebec. While Russ Jackson was undeniably the Canadian hero in the football field, the unsung hero on the streets of Montreal was a cop from Point St. Charles who had volunteered to join the bomb squad. It, it was actually a few minutes after the first fatal bombing that took place in Montreal, 21st of April of 1963. Until that day, the FLQ were considered more or less as uh, Robin Hoods. You know, they, 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 they gained a certain popularity among, among the population, especially after they bombed the income tax building at uh, Bleury and Dorchester, which is now René Lévesque, uh, who had not dreamed of blowing up the income tax building. But after that, they placed a bomb in a garbage pail at the rear of a military establishment, and uh, night watchman, Mr. William O'Neill, was killed. So from that day, the FLQ lost its, its support. It had blood on its hands. One of the FLQ's first actions was to blow up a symbol of British imperialism, the monument in Quebec City to General Wolfe, who defeated the French in the Plains of Abraham in 1759, the beginning of Anglo domination in Quebec. They believe in what some people will call the philosophy of the bomb, okay? You, if you attack a symbolic target, it makes people understand that they can resist, and that it makes them understand the extent to which they are oppressed and that they can act on this. So there's a sense among the members of the FLQ that they can spark a revolution. Football would have been an interesting target for the FLQ. A Canadian football game and the Grey Cup, moreover, uh, where Ottawa was playing and where the Prime Minister was expected to be in attendance. And of course, the FLQ, you know, hates Prime Minister Trudeau. 
He hated French-Canadian and Quebec nationalism and was openly contemptuous towards the idea of an independent Quebec. Jake Godard must have watched the televised reception to Pierre Elliott Trudeau's presence at the annual Saint-Jean-Baptiste parade in Montreal when he was bombarded with debris from Quebec nationalists and refused to leave the parade on the eve of his election as prime minister. What Godard probably didn't realize at the time was that to hold the 69 Grey Cup in Montreal the next year would be seen in some quarters as an act of defiance. Teams expressed a little reluctance. They said, why is this game being played in Montreal? I think fans probably felt, you know, uncomfortable, you know, wondering what was, you know, whether something was going to happen. Jake Goddard thought very carefully about calling the Grey Cup off. I said all of these concerns had been expressed, and uh, the RCMP had found out uh, that the FLQ uh, was planning to, uh, first of all, disrupt the Grey Cup parade. And he said, I had visions in my head of the Saskatchewan marching band going down one street and coming to the corner and running into an FLQ uh, uh, mob coming the other way. And uh, so he was uh, determined uh, that security would be the utmost. The other problem Godard had was the ambitious Jean Drapeau, the mayor of Montreal. Drapeau, pumped from the success of Expo 67, was into the big leagues now and wanted to attract an American NFL franchise to adorn his first-class city. If Montreal got a team, then Toronto would want one. And if you lost both of those cities, then you'd really be in trouble. You'd basically have a, a very provincial league basically set in Western Canada, possibly a team uh, you know, in, in Hamilton. But would a team in Hamilton or Ottawa survive if people could go you know, next big city over and watch an NFL game. So there was quite a bit of concern over, you know, the NFL making an incursion here. Godard was afraid of the domino effect. If you lose Quebec, you might lose the league. The unraveling of a national institution like the CFL was a metaphor for the country. And the newly elected Prime Minister of Canada would not have missed the symbolism. Trudeau and Godard had a similar problem on their hands. Jake Goddauer really treasured this league. He really believed it was an important national institution, an important part of our culture, and that it must be preserved and nurtured at all costs. While Goddauer and his team were making preparations for the game in Montreal, the FLQ were playing a bigger one, with bombs larger than anyone had seen before. So 1969 opened with a bang, if I miss it. As the bells from Notre Dame Church were bringing in the new year, I was taking apart a huge bomb, which led me to believe that it wasn't going to be a very busy year, and it was. The biggest bomb of the campaign, delivered in February 1969, was reserved for a bastion of Anglo-Canadian power the Montreal Stock Exchange. It contained about 10 pounds of dynamite with a good old silver bell clock that sold for 395 at Pascal's Hardware. They used cheap alarm clock because basically it's supposed to serve only once. So you, you don't have to invest too much. The bomb was placed in the visitor's gallery just after a visiting group had left. Otherwise, 
It was a, a very exciting, very exciting uh, time. Did not really have time to, to think. You see, we had no equipment. It simply did not exist. I had a car aboard which I had basic equipment, like a, a bomb suit. In fact, bomb suit, an armored suit that we wrongly called bomb suit because it would not resist much of a bomb, actually. The absence of equipment made, forced us to, to improvise. Canadair built us a shield, and we borrowed poles from Hydro-Quebec, the poles that uh, linemen are using to cut wires and so on. But that shield was cumbersome. Imagine trying to open a mailbox with poles eight foot long or trying to cut a wire. So, so after pretty honest tries, you know, they put them aside, and I had purchased a small pair of nail cutters at Pascal Hardware. These cost $3.95, the same price as a uh, cheap alarm clock, the West clocks that were quite popular among our terrorists. They were selling for $3.95, the same. For the players coming in from Ottawa, the last thing on their minds was Quebec politics. All they wanted to do was win the final game of the season and leave the troubles to the politicians and the security forces. Well, the people you think 40 some odd years ago, how young everybody looked. I'm Ken Lehman. Uh, my number was 41, and I played metal linebacker. I'm Wayne Giardino, number 21. I played cornerback on defense and halfback on offense. My name is Don Southern, and my number was 14. And uh, my position on defense was the left cornerback. My name is Tom Bainan, number 61. I played left offensive tackle. My name is Ron Stewart. My number was 11, and I played uh, halfback. My name is Russ Jackson. I wore number 12, and I played quarterback for the Ottawa Football Club. Myself and I'm sure my teammates uh, recognize the same things that were happening uh, with the FLQ, and then we got updated, you know, usually on television when we were here practicing, and you, you're off the, the field, and, and you noticed that there was police and police cars, but I don't think that was on our minds. Or I, I think our mindset was winning a football game. I think we were maybe a little more aware than than the uh, Saskatchewan players uh, coming from the nation's capital. Yes, we heard about that, and we didn't have anything to do with it, I want to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Number 12, playing his final game, is Russ Jackson at quarterback. For Russ Jackson, the stakes were high. Ottawa had been badly beaten by Saskatchewan during the season, and this was to be his last game. He was retiring after 12 years in the league and wanted to end his career on a high note. He probably could have played for another four or five years, but he had a sense of who he was, where he was in his life, and what he wanted to do. And uh, he had made up his mind this was going to be his last year, and uh, I think he also made up his mind it was going to be a great year. I guess I went into the week and into the game thinking about the various things about um, the end of a career, uh, going into education completely, which was my real career, and... Um, it was a little difficult. I realized this was the end. This was where it was all ending. And all that was left was the game on the weekend to play and then hopefully win the Grey Cup. With rumors of a threat on Jackson's life, the security forces on the field that day were hoping this wasn't his last game. 
nobody made me aware of it, and I'm glad they didn't. Um, my wife would have had a bird if she had, had known there had been a threat on my life. I was surprised that, you know, I would be considered someone that would be worthwhile taking or something like that, whatever they did. But, uh, yeah, I, I felt comfortable that, hey, they were looking after me. It will take 90 minutes. For As the municipal, provincial, and federal security teams were working overtime to prepare for game day, the fans were arriving from across Canada. The, the Francophones were able to see a, a party, and one thing Montreal loves is a party. And when you suddenly have chuck wagons uh, in the middle of the street outside the Queen Elizabeth Hotel and uh, people riding horses into the lobby of the hotel, and uh, this was something that uh, the people could identify. It was a party. From uh, yes. Deepmaker uh, Country. Yes, uh, Saskatoon. Okay. Hey! Uh, you uh, uh, Do you think football keeps the boy out of trouble? It certainly does, especially myself. Yes, I am from Calgary, Alberta. Did you have any sort of apprehensions that there would sort of be some trouble in Montreal? Well, they sent us letters and said there's going to be trouble, but we don't believe that until we get here. Who, who sent you letters saying there's going to be trouble? Uh, we got a, a notification from the, what do you call it, the Great Cup committees. Yeah. And they said that's how it was, and we take it from there. And there's supposed to be 200 Calgary fans coming down, but only 70 of us showed up. Where are you from? Oh, Montreal! Where else? <laughs> Probably for a lot of French Canadians, it was the first uh, contact with people from Calgary and Edmonton and Vancouver. And in that respect, it was probably, uh, you know, an awakening for, for a lot of people. For many Montrealers, the citywide party was a welcome relief to the continual tension of not knowing when an explosion of dynamite might go off in your neighborhood. If the FLQ was thinking about disrupting the game with an attempt on Jackson's life, they would be facing the largest security force ever mounted in Canadian history for a sporting event. In the Canadian Football League, Russ Jackson, of course, playing his final game for the Ottawa club. Ronnie Lancaster, a former teammate of Jackson, quarterbacking the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. A tremendous number of, of outstanding players are in the Hall of Fame uh, from those two particular teams in that particular era. Besides uh, Jackson and Stewart on the Ottawa side, and great receivers like Vic Washington and Whit Tucker, on the other side you had Ron Lancaster, who was traded by Ottawa for, as he likes to say, a broken helmet and, uh, and maybe 500 bucks. And of course you had the great George Reed, so uh, you had some of the greatest players of all time playing on that particular day. The wake-up game is underway. Billy Cooper at the pit. That field was, I would think, one of the weirdest fields I had ever played a football game on because of the differences as you moved around the surface. Some place it was muddy, some place it was ice. Russ, do you remember I had a, a coffee cup full of sand when I'm going to come out to kick? What to kick to make sure it was smooth? I'd put sand down where my yeah. plant foot was because in practice I'd put my plant foot down and I went on my ass. Yeah. And, <laughs> Where the hell did you get the sand from? Yeah. Underneath the damn uh, sands. Put it in your pocket? You I put it in my jock strap. <laughs> <laughs> a very difficult time establishing a charge, so Jackson's having a lot of time. That's right. Boy, that was, that's one of those slippery spots, eh? Saskatchewan in possession at the 30-yard line. Yeah. Soupy. Get him, Soup. 
First one, first big break there. Gentleman turns the break into a scoring play. Lance to the four. Heart was pumping pretty good, just the game and then as well. Last game of the season, uh, Prime Minister Canada is at the game and uh, packed house. It was uh, quite an atmosphere. At the 13-yard line, as Frank Clare shows a little concern of the Ottawa bench about the early events of the game. The first quarter was rather devastating to us because, uh, boy, something happened and the score was 7 nothing, And uh, they got a safety touch later. All of a sudden, the score was 9 nothing. The score wasn't the only problem for the Ottawa team. Jackson had taken a hard hit in the first quarter and now had to play the rest of the game with a separated left shoulder. I wonder how many of those guys stand around there are security people. A lot of them. <laughs> There's probably a lot of security there that we never saw. Well, that's the good security. Yeah. The good security are the guys you don't notice. Like most Francophone Quebecers, Bob Cote was not interested in the game of football. The only game in his mind these days was how to protect the citizens of Montreal and prevent the FLQ from scoring a victory on the streets of his hometown. With just two days before the Grey Cup, things were heating up. I have heard uh, rumors there might be a move to uh, block the parade at Dominion Square. In any event, we will be prepared to uh, take care of any situation. Grey Cup was planned for the November the 30th. So the climate was very heavy. Mayor Drapeau had proposed and the council had voted on a bylaw which prohibited any demonstration in Montreal. So that bylaw was strongly contested, was expected by the social groups, and they were planning to make some noise about it. So the planning of security for the Grey Cup took place in the climate. Bombs and massive demonstrations that we expected were to take place. On the night of November 28th, just 12 hours before the Grey Cup parade was to begin, there was an illegal demonstration held at the Monument National, not far from the City Hall. Some people feared that it might be the prelude to a weekend of trouble. While Montrealers were once again taking to the streets in protest, Russ Jackson was receiving two Shenley Awards that night for most outstanding player and most outstanding Canadian. The only item on Bob Cote's agenda that night was preparing for the Grey Cup parade. I was requested to make arrangements that every float be inspected. We were at La Fontaine Park at four in the morning, inspection of all these, these cars, and we were there until 10 in the morning. along the route. However, we have here in this area around La Fontaine Park probably the heaviest concentration of security that I have ever seen for any Grey Cup parade. It must have been a surprise for most that the Grey Cup parade was going ahead. Just weeks before, the historic Santa Claus parade was cancelled. It would have been even more of a surprise for a teenager from Saskatchewan who had just been crowned Miss Grey Cup. 
And so the Grey Cup Parade was actually the first parade or sort of celebratory um, occasion that was happening in Montreal that fall. So it was a big deal, and there was some worry. There were, there were. Um, I remember police in sort of riot gear in pairs all along the parade route, and there were barricades to keep people back. Wherever they took us in buses and so on, we had lots of big burly Quebecois security men, and. Moving this group of young women around was probably a bit of a logistical nightmare for them. So um, because of security, they took us long circuitous routes through the hotel, getting to places. And I actually remember riding the elevator in the sort of kitchen area, the back of the scenes elevators. We rode up and down in those quite a bit. And uh, they kept us pretty safe. Lieutenant, what's the feeling here among most of the police officers? I haven't heard nothing so far, so it's not finished, of course. We'll be finished only tomorrow night, so what's going to happen, we don't know. We're hoping for the best. Bob Cote, who is now heading off to inspect the stadium, was also hoping for the best. Now, after 58 or 60-odd calls, are you still jittery? Well, dismantling a bomb is not something that you get used to. Uh, no matter how many cases you may have handled, and also you have to watch uh, yourself so that you don't become overconfident. I was asked quite often, what the, how do you feel when you're, you, you, you are facing a bomb, you see? Even before you arrive, you see all kinds of flashing red lights, you know, the police, the fire department, the ambulance are there. They're waiting for the guest of honor. That's you. You're scared, you're scared like him, but that's you. So you approach the bomb, and first thing you know, you hear it ticking. You say, what the heck am I doing here? You know, but you can't say, hey, that's dangerous. I call the police. You are the police. You know? You're the one who said, oh, I'll take care of that. You know? So you realize that you are in deep trouble. Once it's over, everybody's congratulating you. You know, the, the journalists, the, the guy, good job, good job. Ah, there's nothing there, nothing there. You know? So you go back home and you try to go back to sleep. So you say, no, no more, that's it. I don't do that anymore. You know? Then the following day, the phone rang, and then you go. That's, uh, that, that, that's the way it was. Good afternoon. This is Ernie Afghanis welcoming you from the Autostad in Montreal. In just 30 minutes, Ottawa and Saskatchewan meet in what is expected to be a classic despite less than ideal conditions. The following day, at 7 in the morning, I was at the autostop, and we inspected the access routes in and out in case we had to transport uh, explosives or, or bombs um, until 11.30. Pat Hickey, a young sports reporter covering Canadian football, remembers the day well. The first thing you noticed was the, the incredible security there. People were asked to open bags. Uh, there were cursory pat-downs. And uh, as you started walking up to the press box, you'd look behind you, and you saw there was this ring of, of security personnel. Uh, you know, these are things that you never saw at a, at a sporting event like this. We were told the security was going to be very tight, but when you actually saw all of these people on the field, you realized that, you know, people were taking this very seriously. There were these light standards with pods, and uh, each one of them held a sniper. So Mayor Drapeau uh, 
went overboard in terms of providing the security. Drapo was fully aware of the risks. Just eight weeks before the game, the bombs were getting closer and personal. On the 27th of September, Mayor Drapo's house was very severely damaged by a bomb placed on the stairs leading to his basement. The house was not demolished, but the repairs were very, very extensive. There is no doubt that all people in public life definitely are exposed to that and are afraid, and maybe more the wise man holding public office are afraid that a bomb will explode someday. You don't threaten Mr. Trudeau. He just doesn't, you know, take threats. He just doesn't stand down. So uh, the thought that uh, a group could hijack, you know, a, a national game and in the process send threatening gestures towards him would only motivate him and infuriate him to the point that nothing would have prevented him from going to that football game. By that time, all Canadians knew his image. I mean, he always dressed differently. He always did things that were a little bit, you know, off the walls. So he he uh, was just a different cat. He's got about as much hair as we have now. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Prime Minister will be the man handling the ceremonial kickoff as he did last year in 1968. With three million Canadians watching the previous year, the newly elected and media-conscious Trudeau was eager to impress. He had apparently practiced for the kick and was wearing special shoes for the occasion. My feeling is that his reaction would have been a bit of a chuckle that he flubbed it. Uh, he didn't take himself that seriously. But on the other hand, a bit of embarrassment. How could you not be? He was very proud and his image was very important. So uh, I think one of the reasons Mr. Trudeau would have come to the, uh, amongst many reasons, to the 69 was to show everybody that he could kick the ball very well. And my guess is that he did a fair amount of preparation before he did that. Trudeau's form was, uh, I'd give him about a 40. Uh, he, he was leaning too much to the left, and, and uh, he shanked the ball, as we say in the kicking. Whether <laughs> or not, he did all right. <laughs> Despite shanking the ball, Trudeau sets a new ceremonial record with 28 yards in the air beating a previous official by one yard. I thought he looked pretty dapper, you know, and, uh, and I was surprised how well he kicked the ball. So uh, he'd obviously practiced a couple times before he, uh, he did that, but uh, it was very neat to have him there. And, you know, I think most of the guys would agree that it made you proud that you were a Canadian. This was sort of a culmination of a great year and a great Canadian sport. While the fans and players sing the national anthem, the security officials behind the scenes and on the field are holding their breath, hoping the FLQ was taking a break from their most intensive year to date. It's interesting the way the, the Canadian Football League reflects the country, you know, the way the teams reflected the things that were happening across the country. And, uh, you know, I, I think that this was part of the backdrop, I think, I think politicians felt that it was important to get this game in Quebec and to, you know, bring Quebec, make them feel more a part of Canada. For Trudeau and Godard, this was just the beginning of a long political game to interest Francophone Quebecers 
and Canadian institutions. At the time, they had no idea that within seven years, 41% of Quebecers would vote for a political organization dedicated to an independent Quebec, the Parti Québécois that was just formed in 1968. There was a feeling that despite all these differences, that the Grey Cup symbolized and was emblematic of the fact that the country could come together under one roof for a national celebration, and both of them would have recognized that. Their conversations wouldn't have been, hey, did you see that great pass? It would have been of a deeper nature. Great pleasure to meet you, sir. We're wondering if your, well, sport has lived up to your expectations as a unifying force in, the, in our country. Oh, yes, and I think we have evidence of that in the past several days in Montreal. People from all over the country, from other countries, and just full of a great a deal for Canada. I think the two key phrases is they both believe, first of all, you belong, and we want you. And those were the two common denominators in their beliefs when it came to Quebec, and that was either through the political realm or through the sports realm. While Trudeau and Godard were dealing with the politics of national unity, it was left to guys like Bob Cote to deal with the more extremist elements of a political movement that was strategically planting the idea of an independent Quebec. We still felt that game plan-wise, we had a pretty good idea of what they were going to do. They were going to take the long pass away from us. I know they're going to come after me. I know they're going to try and blitz me because that's the way they stop you from throwing deep is they bring an extra linebacker or two linebackers sometimes to put the pressure on you and it doesn't give you enough time to throw the ball downfield. So you've got to get rid of it in a hurry. And so that's where it started to work in our favor is they started to do what we thought they were going to do and all of a sudden the things became available to us. For us, it was the short passes that started to turn things around. fell behind early, Russ just took the team on his back and uh, you had the feeling that he was in control of the game. Every time that he got back on the field, that he was going to do something with the ball. Adkins picked for Tucker on set. Oxygen, bring the yeah. tank. <laughs> and 80 yards. Yeah, that was a super run, right? Great yeah. pass. Russ Jackson is the greatest Canadian football player of all time. I don't think there's uh, there's any doubt about that whatsoever. He had a unique set of skills that uh, just couldn't be duplicated. There might have been other quarterbacks who could throw the ball as well. There might have been other quarterbacks who could run as well as he did. There might have been some quarterbacks who were innovative but nobody had the total package like Russ had. I don't know how many times I've thrown the ball just as someone was about to hit you from behind. There's a sense, I guess, I don't know, a sixth sense or whatever it is, and I think a lot of quarterbacks have to have it or else you're gonna get killed. And I've always thought that part of that is timing. 
you know when you drop back to throw the ball and you're in a pocket, if you haven't got rid of it, you better move somewhere before someone, as they say, kills you. But that internal clock is measuring the time you got to do it. Any close calls in the last year and a couple of months? Well, the closest one, uh, I would say, was one in November in the downtown store. At 2.30 in the afternoon, Bob got a call that a bomb was set to explode at a busy department store in 30 minutes. It was Friday afternoon with lots of traffic, and he had to get to Eaton's on St. Catherine Street, one of the busiest in Montreal. Fortunately, there was a police motorcycle there. So we say, we got to go to Eaton's very quickly. Just follow me. I had to enter through revolving doors. So it means no equipment could be got in the store. So I went there with my clippers. The bomb had been placed on a jewelry counter in the shoebox and was noticed when it fell on the floor. I could not see the hands. It was face down, so I pushed in the, the alarm button and I clipped the wire. And I came out of the store, gloves and the box under. Then for the first time in my life, I was applauded. So that's probably the closest call that I had. And so it was dismantled a few minutes before, you see? <laughs> but that's, uh, that's part of the game, you see? <laughs> Getting set for the concluding 30 minutes of this 1969 very exciting Grey Cup game. At halftime, Godard and the security forces were happy it was only the game that was causing the excitement. You know, I think we all felt like we were going to come back in the second half. Uh, we had a lot of games where we came back in the last few minutes to win the game. So we felt like, hey, we could be ahead. We're just a little behind. We're going to be okay in the second half. There he goes. Oh, pressure. There he goes, a little pressure. Good place, Great defending against Alan Ford, but Ford had a great chance to bring the ball in. He slipped right through his hands as the ball. The Ottawa defense were on their game that day as they continued to shut down George Reed, the greatest running back in CFL history. Sudsy gets to kick another one. Oh, Sudsy's sure. big toes working. Oh, that's the yeah. same job, did it? Yeah. yeah. Two linebackers pretty close. You sneak out right oh, here there. They come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Here they come. Yeah. Lucky to get that away, Russ. Yeah. yeah. To this day, no one has beaten Jackson's all-time record of four touchdown passes in a Grey Cup game. This could be the last play of the Grey Cup game. This is just running the clock. Don't get hurt. <laughs> and it's all over. The Ottawa Rough Riders have retained the Grey Cup for the second consecutive year. Football Commissioner Jake Adar said not too long ago, this game will have the greatest security ever. 
It may have taken the largest security force in history to pull off this game without a hitch, but it was an important victory for Godard and Trudeau. Well, here's the Grey Cup presentation to Russ Jackson, the quarterback who ends it all in storybook style. I sort of offered to trade my helmet for the Tam hat, because I didn't need the helmet anymore. I just was in that kind of mood, and uh, he said he couldn't, uh, couldn't trade the hat because Margaret had knit it for him, so he couldn't give it up. So uh, I didn't get the hat, and he didn't get my helmets. But that was a deal I was trying to make right there as I was taking the Grey Cup. Russ, how's that left shoulder? I was over at the bench, and I know you got to took a pretty good shot there early in the game. Oh, it's pretty sore, but it's all right. It'll be okay. It's the end of the year and the end of the career, so it's all right. It's, the ground was awfully hard, and they drilled me once early, and that's, I don't know, it may be separated, but it's all right. How about this plan of yours? It's all over now, 12 years of professional football, and uh, it couldn't end any better. To this day, uh, people still talk about, like, it was, a, it was the ending you couldn't write, and, and it happened, and... Um, I, I have no regrets to this day about about leaving that way and leaving on top. Watching the news that night, Bob Cote was relieved there were no incidents at the Grey Cup. If he had been watching Jackson that day, he might have wished he was the one retiring on top of his game. At 11 p.m., just before he was ready for bed, the phone rang. He was called to McGill University campus, where a bomb had just exploded, a few kilometers from where the game was played. Bob didn't retire for another 21 years. He was awarded the Order of Canada in 1972. After retirement from the force, he went into municipal politics and ended up deputy mayor of Montreal. Trudeau retired in 1984 having served in public office longer than any other contemporary leader in the Western world. Jake Goddard also retired in 1984, having served as CFL commissioner since 1968, the year Trudeau was first elected. The two of them were passionate Canadians who wanted Quebec in the game, and for the time being, Quebec remains within Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask you to rise for our national anthem. When the Alouettes come to Calgary or Regina, they sing the national anthem in both languages, and there's nary a peep. Whereas we all remember in Regina and Calgary and other parts of English Canada, when they sang the national anthem in English and French, they were just lustily, lustily booed. Jake deserves a lot of credit for turning that around, and uh, there's been an indirect spin-off of that. Uh, because of, of work like that on those kinds of fronts, uh, relations between English and French Canada uh, are a lot better now than they may otherwise have been. Quebec nationalism and passion for their unique language and culture will never die. Today, Anglophone and Francophone fans are enjoying the game of Canadian football, now a truly bilingual sport. They've come back into the fold 100%. I think that you can go back to when Jake wanted to make sure it was the Canadian game and it didn't cut off at the Quebec border as being a start of that. And, and it may be 40 years later, but you can go back that far and say, that's where we could have lost it.